Amen. Let's start in Acts chapter 1 tonight. We've been teaching for a number of weeks uh, a series on the Holy Spirit. And we want to continue to go along that same line a little bit further tonight. Acts chapter 1 verse 4, Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Jesus tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Spirit from the Father. He goes on in verse 8 and says, But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Skip over to chapter 2 now. Verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, folks, I want you to notice something. Jesus said you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now, covering some of the ground that we've talked about before without taking time to go back and looking at the same scriptures and, and, and that type of thing, we know that Jesus told the disciples about two different works of the Holy Ghost. One, he said the Holy Ghost would be in you. And that's, of course, what takes place at salvation when we ask Jesus into our hearts. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and all things become new. So we know the Holy Ghost coming upon us or coming within us at the new birth is the means whereby we are born again. And we have a list of nine characteristics that are connected with bearing fruit. In Galatians chapter 2, they're known as the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. Well, the fruit grows on the branches, not on the vine, not on the trunk. And so we know that those nine characteristics in Galatians chapter 5, what's called the fruit of the Spirit, we know that those things are, the are for the development of character or holiness. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law, the Scripture says. Those are characteristics of, of holiness. Those are character traits that we're supposed to develop in our lives because the Holy Ghost indwells us. But then we've got over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 a different list, a separate list of nine manifestations of the Spirit. And it talks about, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, identifying to them the different ways that the Holy Ghost manifests himself. Three of those manifestations are what we call power gifts. Three of those manifestations are what we call revelation gifts. And three of those are what we call vocal gifts. Well, those non-different manifestations of the Spirit aren't a part of the Holy Ghost dwelling in you. It's a part of what Jesus said would happen when the Holy Ghost came upon you. So here in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. These guys are already saved. They're waiting for the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem for the endowment of power. But according to those scriptures that we just read in, in chapter 2 when the Holy Ghost is poured out, they didn't get power, they got tongues. In the early days of Pentecost here in America, there was a, uh, in 1907, there was an Azusa Street revival that wound up lasting for almost three years. And it, was, um, it wasn't organized in any way. There was not one church or one um, well, I don't, know, I don't know how to say it other than just say it was unorganized. I don't want to say disorganized because that makes it sound like it was flying by the seat of the pants. But there was no organized schedule. There was no organized plan or purpose for these meetings. These meetings just ran for almost three years nonstop. And there were thousands of people that were filled with the Holy Ghost. And before that time, there was hardly anybody in America that had... had uh, that was familiar with the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. So it was a landmark, particularly for America, it was a landmark in the history of God in mankind. Well, there was a lot of different manifestations, a lot of different things that took place. Uh, Dr. William Seymour, was, I say doctor, he was called doctor just as an honorary type thing. 
he had very little training, formal training. But Dr. Seymour made uh, uh, gave a, a historical record. He was the one that, that preached nine out of ten sermons at um, uh, during the Azusa Street revival. He took most of the ministry. Um, he performed most of the ministry during that time. And he talked about all, a lot of different things that happened, a lot of things that happened when they shouldn't have happened. He said that they learned to rely on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it gives us the list of manifestations of the Spirit. He said until the Holy Ghost began to manifest, he said all these things were just theory. But then when the, the revival began and people began to be filled with the Spirit, he realized, they all realized, but he wrote about the realization that came upon them regarding the manifestations of the Spirit, the direction that the Bible gives regarding the manifestations of the Spirit. Because he said they had a lot of things that went on that sure wasn't God. There were a lot of manifestations that were clearly of the devil. But he made an interesting comment. He said this. He said when we, uh, when we experienced some of those manifestations that were not of God, and when we tried to bring correction to it and stifle the things that weren't God, he said the Holy Ghost quit moving. He said as long as we held our hands on it to try to control it or make sure it was right or, or whatever, whatever terminology he used, he said the Holy Spirit quit moving. We came to understand that it was not our part or our place to steady the ark. Now the, the example they used, the phrase they used, steady the ark, that's a, a scriptural analogy. You remember when David brought back the Ark of the Covenant, he became king of Israel. He brought back the Ark of the Covenant. They were transporting it on a, an ox cart. And the ox cart hit some bump or hole in the road or something like that. And it, the Ark became unsteady. And one of the guys, one of the priests that was uh, uh, helping to bring it back, reached out and touched the side of the Ark to steady it. That guy fell dead instantly. Now that may seem a little harsh. Well, it doesn't seem a little harsh. It is harsh. <laughs> but Dr. Seymour used that same uh, example. He said, when we tried to steady the ark, the Holy Ghost quit moving. it. We learned, he said, to let the Holy Ghost take care of his own business. Well, again... Jesus said, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. But the thing that was evident on them was tongues. When the people spilled out, when the 120 spilled out into the streets after they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, after they began to speak in other tongues, everybody in the, in the street thought that they were drunk. Now, folks, use your imagination a little bit here. The fact that Peter begins to speak to the crowd and the first thing he says is, men and brethren, these men are not drunk as you suppose. What is there about speaking in tongues that makes somebody look drunk? There must have been other manifestations. There must have been other things that were taking place. Because simply speaking in other tongues doesn't make you look drunk. Well, we all know what drunk people look like. There are different kinds of drunks. Some are happy drunks. Some are mean drunks and so forth. But Peter said, the things that you see in them, it's of God. It's not drunkenness, as you suppose. Now, when Peter preaches, it's not a real long sermon if we have the entirety of the text in uh, Acts chapter 2. If we have everything that Peter said, it's really not a very long sermon. And it's really not very, well, what should we say? It's not the best that he ever did. But 3,000 people got saved. So what they heard and what they experienced was tongues. But folks, without the power of the Holy Spirit behind what Peter said, there would have been no way for that kind of crowd to be saved. No way in the world. Now, I, I came up under Brother Hagen, worked for him for a number of years, had the privilege of, of a close relationship with him for a period of time. And as you well know, as you've heard me say more times than not, those years were landmark years for me. 
They changed my life. There's nobody on the face of the earth, no human being on the face of the earth that's had a greater impact on me and had more to do with changing my life for good than Brother Hagin. And Brother Hagin would tell stories about these things in his teaching. He'd tell stories about how the power of the Holy Ghost through speaking and praying in other tongues would manifest some tremendous things. One of the stories he told about was a missionary that had sailed from one place somewhere on the continent of Africa. I don't remember exactly where it was, but it's uh, somewhere on the coast of Africa, I should say. And he was sailing from one place, traveling by boat from one place to another place that he uh, needed to visit for ministry. And they got taken up in a storm. It wasn't a real long voyage, but it, they got taken up by a storm. The intent was to be there before darkness set in because nobody really sailed anywhere after dark. This was back in the 30s, I guess, the 1930s. And so they got caught in this storm and got stuck in the dark. And so they didn't have any landmarks to, to guide them. It's a tremendously dark night, no stars in the sky to navigate with or anything like that. And so they came to the place where the captain of the ship told him, he said, I don't know what we're going to do. He said, this storm has blown us off course to such a degree. We think we've gotten back to the place that we're supposed to be. But because it was so dark, they still couldn't tell for sure. But he said the place that they were going, and, and the missionary knew this already, so this part of the story is just for our benefit, I guess. But the place that they were going had a natural harbor, which means it was surrounded or protected by natural reefs. Well, if they don't hit this opening just right with the ship that they're sailing in, they'd be dashed upon the rocks and again with the storm raging and so forth they'd more than likely be killed so he says I don't know what to do we can't stay out in the storm but if we try to go inland we run the risk of landing on the rocks and that'll be it for all of us and so the missionary said well let's pray and so they prayed together I don't know how much of a Christian the guy was before these events took place but a lot of people, when they get in trouble, they'll pray no matter what they think. So they prayed, and the missionary said, take your best guess, and let's go for it. And the missionary's story, and he was telling this, he'd returned to the States for some kind of convention or something like that. And so he explained to the people, he said, God is my witness. We started in toward the harbor. The captain cried out, seeing that we were in the wrong place. And all of a sudden, the ship just lifted up from the water and sailed over the reef and landed in the still, stillness of the waters inside the harbor. Right. I mean, that's pretty good. Well, he was telling the story, but he didn't give any of the details about when it was or dates, times, or anything like that. So somebody that he had been acquainted with that knew him and his family, this whole family was on the mission field too, I think. She asked him, she said, was that at such and such a time, such and such a date and such and such a time? And he was astonished and he said, yes, why? She said, I was praying about that. She said, the Lord woke me up and I had to pray. And I prayed and prayed and prayed, prayed for several hours. Thank God for people that are willing to pray for a while. She said, I prayed for hours about this. She said, finally, I got a lift. Uh, I felt the burden lift off of me. And she said, I saw your face. And so she said, I never knew. I, I knew you were going to be at this convention, so that's why I'm here. I was going to ask you about what happened at such and such a time. Well, they did uh, some calculations as far as the time change and time difference and that kind of stuff. And she was praying and got the, the victory Lifted, the burden lifted off of her just about the time that that boat sailed in the air to go across into the harbor. Well, stories like that excite us, huh? I mean, and certainly we could say that's an extreme example. Maybe once in a lifetime type experience. 
probably for the missionary and the lady that prayed both. But a lot of times the extreme examples, I think, have some built-in hindrances for us. In this case, it was the, the length of time that the lady prayed. I don't know, I don't remember her saying how long it was, but it was many hours at one time, kneeling there by her bed, praying for this missionary. Folks, I don't know a lot of people that would do that. I don't know a lot of people that would do that if God told them ahead of time, I want you to pray for so many hours, and here's the reason why, and here's who you're praying for. Unless it's a family member, I don't know if there's going to be much takers, many takers on that either. Another story that Brother Hagin told, again, it's family member type thing. They had a daughter. The daughter's name was Blanche. And she was a missionary in a third, third world country. I think it was in the continent of Africa somewhere too. And so the, uh, this was back in the old days when a lot of people were living on farms, family owned farms and that type of thing. Well, they had a small farm, and so the dad got up, went out to do the chores, started milking the cows and that kind of stuff, feeding the chickens or whatever. And as you have heard, just like I have, days start pretty early on the farm because there's a lot of things to do and take care of. And so the dad was going out. She was his own, their only daughter. The dad's going out to milk the cows and feed the chickens or whatever, farm chores. And he comes back in after just a few minutes, and his wife says, honey, what is it? She said that he looked real pale, and, and so she thought that maybe he wasn't feeling well. And so uh, he, said, uh, he said, I don't know what it is. He said, well, we've got to pray for Blanche. Well, they knelt down there in the kitchen by the kitchen table, and they started praying. They prayed for an hour. Cows are moving, wanting to be milked. Chickens are making chicken sounds because they want to be fed. This went on for one hour, then two hours, then three hours, and then four hours. And somewhere between the fourth and the fifth hour, he had a vision. And his vision was that in some African hut, Blanche's body was laid out, and there was a sheet pulled over her face as if she had died. And so the attending physician came to him and said, I'm sorry, but your daughter's dead. And he responded in the vision to the attending physician or tribal, whoever is administering medical care. He said, no, she's not dead. And the guy answered, the medical attendant answered, well, of course she's dead. You think I don't know a dead person when I see one? Look, see for yourself. And so he pulled the sheet back and her eyes opened. She got up well. Well, that was exactly what had happened. She had taken some jungle disease or whatever that had claimed her life and at the exact time again allowing for time change and so forth at the exact time that they were praying was when these things happened she gave the report communication wasn't what it is today and so it took a long time for them to even be able to get any word to her or from her but by the time she was able to tell them it happened just the way that they saw in the vision, except the father wasn't there, of course. But they had pronounced her dead, and somebody that was there as a part of the, the missionary crew said she can't be dead. So the medical guy pulls the sheet back, and she's, she opens her eyes, and she was okay. Well, I don't know about you, but those kind of things thrill my heart. Those kind of stories make me want to pray. I had to hear Brother Hagin talk about things that he experienced. And most of these stories were while he was pastoring. He spent 12 years, the first 12 years of his ministry, pastoring a couple of different churches. But he never really was called to be a pastor. He said that the Lord wound up telling him that the time that he spent pastoring was just in preparation for the work that God had for him to do. And if anybody in modern times was a legitimate prophet, it was him. And so, so many of the things that he experienced were in line with the ministry that God had for him down the road. But he would talk about times when he would be praying in the Spirit. Sometimes he'd be prompted specifically 
to do a little bit more praying than he had before or what he normally did. And he would see, he would have a vision about, and see somebody that was going to be in the service the next day and what they needed from God and how to minister to them. And so he, just, he would say, I just acted those things out when I got in church the next day. There were many times where he's sitting on the platform waiting for the service to uh, finish the announcements or whatever, and he locates somebody that he saw in the vision before. He's got them located because he saw somebody in a blue dress or white shirt or whatever. And so he's got them located, and so when the time comes, he just does what he saw himself do in the vision, and, um, and it worked just the way it did in the vision. Well, I've never had that. Have you? I've never had an experience like that. Brother Hagen told another story, and it was, again, it was trying to encourage people to pray, to try to encourage people to use the gift that God has given them. But he talked about how that he, when he was early on in his ministry after he had been filled with the Holy Ghost, he would spend some time praying. And on one occasion, he set out to pray for an hour in other tongues. He said it was the longest hour of his life. He kept checking the clock thinking it's got to be up by now and it's 10 minutes past after when he started. And so after he finally struggled through that first hour, no unction, just speaking in tongues to edify himself. The devil told him, well, now you've wasted an hour. You could have been using that time to get your sermon ready. And he said, just for that, Mr. Devil, I'm going to pray two hours. So he did. Two hours were the longest two hours of his life. Because there's no anointing behind it. There's no, there's no purpose other than he's doing something because the Bible says when you speak in an unknown tongue, you edify yourself. That's all, he's, that's all he's doing, all he's working on. Well, after the two hours, which makes a total of three, the devil comes back again and says, you've wasted three hours now. And Brother Hagin said, just for that, Mr. Devil, I'm going to pray four hours in other tongues. So he got down back on his knees. Now, that would have been a total of seven but he said at the four-hour and 45-minute mark, as he described it, he said, I hit a gusher. He said, the Holy Ghost took hold with me. And he said, I wound up praying through the next several hours, feeling like it was 10 minutes. There's, there are times where the Holy Ghost will help us to pray. And it's like wind in your sails. It pushes you forward. It's a supernatural advancement, if you will, or a supernatural moving forward. But then there are other times where we're left to do it without any feelings, without any emotion, without any help from the Holy Ghost, really. He always helps us when we speak in other tongues by giving us the utterance in other tongues. But when I say nothing special or no special help, I mean nothing outside of that that every believer, every spirit-filled believer has and should use. Well, I remember the first time I heard him tell that story, and I thought, Lord... I don't mean to be rude about this, but if it's going to take me four hours and 45 minutes to find the Holy Spirit in prayer, I just don't think I can do that. And that used to look like the longest period of time in all the world. Now it's pretty much a normal day for me. That's one of the reasons why I spend so much time alone. Because when I'm alone, I can pray in the Holy Ghost. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there's, well, I can tell you this with certainty. There has never been a time where I've prayed for four hours and 45 minutes or some extended period of time like that just at one sitting. But I'm praying in the Holy Ghost all day long. When you add up the praying that I do in the Holy Ghost from day to day, four to five hours is simple. That's probably a light day. But because I'm by myself for so much of the time, I can do that. That seems to me to be what Paul is saying when he said, I speak in tongues more than you all to the Corinthians. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now let me give some context to the verses we're going to read. We know from the other chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians the situation that's taking place in the church. And Paul is writing 
much of his writing in his letter to the, his first letter to the Corinthians, much of that is to correct the things that they're doing and bring some order to things that are out of order, their services which are out of order. And so apparently they were, they mean the Corinthian church, were coming together and had no real purpose for it other than everybody doing their own thing in the Holy Ghost. And so there would be a lot of speaking in tongues, not a lot of preaching or teaching apparently, but there was a lot of speaking in tongues to such a degree that Paul said the people that are coming from the outside, the unsaved, or maybe not even unsaved people, but people that don't know about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He said, when they come in and see the way you're acting in a service, they think you're crazy. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, that's one of the things that freaked me out about the Holy Spirit before I received it. Because there was an Assembly of God church that uh, I started going to from time to time. Grew up Southern Baptist, and that's where all my friends were, so that's where I was. I went to church for friends. I learned that that wasn't necessarily the best way to go about things. Go where God wants you to go and make friends is a better way. But anyway, I would go to this Assembly of God church. And the way that the Holy Ghost, what they call the Holy Ghost moving in the, took place in the services, I just didn't want to be associated with that. They were fine people, not criticizing the people. They loved God with all their heart. It's clearly obvious that that was the case. I just didn't want people to associate me with what looked to me like a bunch of nuts. And I heard a lot of things about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that turned me off from it a little bit too. Where people would say, well I couldn't help that. God made me do some crazy or stupid thing. And I got to thinking, well Lord if I get filled with the Holy Ghost, you're going to make me do stupid things too. And I don't want to do stupid things. Now folks, stop and think about how, how stupid, how utterly ridiculous that is. But I didn't know. If you don't know, you don't know. Well, thank God God doesn't want you to do stupid things and make people think you're crazy. And that's the whole reason Paul's writing this, because he doesn't want people from the outside thinking they're crazy. It's hurting the reputation of the church. It's hindering the gospel from being preached and, and ministered to people. And so when Paul is writing, to these thing, writing these things to the Corinthians, he's writing them to bring order to their services. Now that's a pretty difficult task he's got. Because think about it. If he comes down on hard on the speaking with tongues, which is the entry to the power of God, they've already uh, got the power of God in operation. Paul said early in the letter that he wrote to them that they come behind in no good gift. Well, that would mean all the manifestations of the Spirit. If they're coming behind in any of these manifestations of the Spirit, Paul couldn't have said that. So when he says you come behind in no good gift, They've got the manifestations of the Spirit that every church should want. They've got miracles in their midst. They've got um, divine utterances. They've got healings taking place. They've got revelation coming regularly. All the things that we all want. Now I'm sure Paul was smart enough to know what Dr. Seymour and the others found out during the Azusa Street Revival. That if you try to steady the ark it stops the Spirit of God from moving. So Paul's got to try to convince them of the truth of God's will concerning these things so that they can bring order to their services but not miss or lose the manifestation of the Holy Ghost that they have. And so Paul tells the general principles. He identifies some general principles. But then joins in with them and says, I speak with tongues more than all you guys. It's not a matter of tongues are wrong. He's not saying give up on tongues. He's saying it takes order for people to recognize how God really wants to operate. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he's talking about the difference between prophesying, which is inspired utterance in a known tongue, versus speaking with other tongues, which is inspired utterance in an unknown tongue. Now the known versus the unknown has to do with the speaker, not necessarily the hearer. See, prophecy would be declaring in a known tongue, in your known tongue, what the Holy Ghost is inspiring you to say. 
But we all know that when we speak in unknown tongues, we don't know what we're saying. Whether or not God does something or is moving in some special way so that somebody else hears and knows what that tongue is and what the meaning of it is, that's certainly beyond our purview or ability. So he says in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. Now notice that Paul is saying prophecy is better in church services than speaking with other tongues. Because if you speak in a known tongue, if you know what you're saying, then the inspired utterance that the Holy Ghost gives you is able to bring blessing and benefit to the people that hear you. But if you're speaking in an unknown tongue, you don't know what you're saying. Chances are the people that are listening to you don't know what you're saying either. And you could well understand that that wouldn't bring as great a blessing in the church service to everybody that attends. But that doesn't mean tongues are wrong. He goes on in verse 4. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. The word edifies literally means to build up the, the word picture that the Greek word paints is to put the roof on the house. In other words, it's, it's implying a completeness. Now, when the Bible talks about Jesus said, we are the building of God, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say that we are the building of God. Then if we're the building of God, then putting on the roof would be a pretty important part, wouldn't it? And so Paul says, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries or divine secrets. Divine secrets. Now folks, how important would, be, would it be to speak divine secrets? That sounds like a pretty big deal to me too. Divine secrets would be something that only God knows. But right out of the gate, Paul says, that the benefit of tongues, one, at least one of the benefits of tongues, not the only one, but one of the benefits of speaking in other tongues is that God shares with you the opportunity to speak about things that only he knows. Now, if we never know what it was about, we can still take comfort in the fact that God was willing to include us in divine secrets. This goes on explaining more about tongues and prophecy, contrasting tongues and prophecy. Notice verse 5, he says, well, I didn't finish verse 4. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies the church. I would that you all spake with tongues, but rather that you prophesied. For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. And notice when he talks about the greater one. He says, he that speaks with tongues, or he that prophesies is greater than he that speaks with tongues. He's not talking about the worth of the individual. He's not talking about the reputation of the individual. He's saying as far as the benefit to the church goes, the benefit to the hearers, it's better to prophesy because then they know what you're saying. And they can be built up, they can be edified, they can be exhorted, they can be comforted. But the equal to that is not somebody that speaks with tongues. The equal to that is somebody or some, some ones, more than one person, that speaks with tongues with the interpretation. It's like a dime versus two nickels. They have the same value. Now the dime is greater than one nickel. Prophecy is greater than, than speaking with tongues. But if the interpretation comes, there's a second nickel to even things out. You see that, don't you? So Paul is talking about the benefit to the church. He keeps going. I won't read the whole thing. Let me skip down to verse 13. He says, wherefore, well, now get the context in verse 12. Even so ye, forasmuch as you are jealous or zealous of spiritual gifts, things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. 
Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays. So speaking in tongues or praying in tongues is, is a, a means, the only means that the Bible really gives us for speaking from our hearts. The real us. The part that's united and in union with God, our Father. So he says, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. Well, how beneficial would it be for your spirit to pray? That's something else that looks to me to be a big deal, doesn't it you? And to fail to take advantage of that, either to fail as a Christian, to fail to be feel, filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. You're bypassing something that God has said in the church to bring blessing not only to the ones, well, not only to you, but if he uses you in tongues and interpretation in a ministry sense to bring blessing to others that hear. What is it then? In other words, in other words he says, what am I going to do then? How should we approach this? What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned, notice it's not unsaved, but the unlearned, he's talking about other Christians that aren't Spirit-filled. He that occupies the room of the unlearned, how is he going to say amen at your giving of thanks, seeing he understands not what you say? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. He's telling us that speaking in, in other tongues is a means of blessing. It's a means of blessing God. It's a means of speaking blessings over ourselves, over others, over whoever the Holy Ghost would direct us to pray for when he does that. Then he says in verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Well, you can't say Paul took a dim view of it if he spends more time praying in tongues than all of them. Yet in the church. See, here's what he's talking about. Yet in the church. I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So again, he's clearly talking about the difference between speaking in tongues in your own private lives Versus speaking in tongues or, or prophesying. The choice between speaking in tongues or prophesying in the church service. Now here's a question I've got for you folks. Let's read again. Verses 2. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2 and 4. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God. For no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries or divine secrets. Verse 4, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. He that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. Again, this is the word that means to put the roof on the house. It has the idea or carries with it the idea of completion. It's telling us that speaking with tongues completes us in the things of God. Now here Paul said to speak in an unknown tongue edifies yourself. Jude said in verse 20, you remember, remember the book of Jude's just one chapter. So the 20th verse of the one chapter of Jude says but you beloved building up yourselves on your most holy faith how do we do that by praying in the Holy Ghost so Paul says edify which means to build up Jude says build up which carries the same meaning how do they know how do they know how do they know what speaking with other tongues is supposed to do? They didn't get it from the Old Testament. Let me read to you the only place where tongues is ever mentioned in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11 and 12. It says, For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak unto this people. Here's Isaiah prophesying about speaking in tongues. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing that yet they would not hear. Now from verse 12, again verse 11 is the only place in the Old Testament that speaking in tongues is referred to. 
Verse 12 tells us something about speaking in tongues, something about the benefit of speaking in tongues. But notice it's not building yourself up. It's entering into rest. Now that has more connection to Jude 20 than it does anything that Paul wrote. Again, Jude verse 20 said, But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. So he says, Jude says, that speaking with other tongues builds you up and stimulates your faith. We know it doesn't bring faith to you. Romans 10, uh, 10 verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Well, faith doesn't come by speaking in tongues then. Well, then what's Jude talking about? He's talking about stimulating your faith as a part of being built up by praying in the Holy Ghost. But there's another passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8 that I want you to look at real quick with me. Here's something else that Paul says and writes to the church about. He begins a few verses earlier than where we'll start reading, talking about the whole earth, the whole creation is groaning until the manifestation of the sons of God comes, until God brings the earth back under his control rather than it being subject to the law of sin and death. So he says, beginning in verse 26, likewise, likewise. The likewise means the same is true for us as the rest of the earth. The earth is groaning and travailing, waiting for the return of Jesus. Likewise, in the same manner that the earth is groaning, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. This word infirmities doesn't mean sickness, it means weakness. Well, what weakness is Paul talking about? For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. How many of us would be willing to admit that we don't always know how to pray for things as we ought to? That seems pretty simple, right? Well, thank God the Holy Ghost helps us in that regard. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The intercession doesn't even mean a type of prayer. It means the utterance that he gives us. The utterance that is always ready when we choose to speak with or pray in other tongues. He said the utterance that is given to us is the Holy Ghost overcoming our weakness because he knows how to pray about every situation. So he gives us utterance. Doesn't say we always know what the utterance is or what we're saying. But it's a faith proposition. When we know we need to pray about something, we enlist the aid of the Holy Ghost to begin speaking or praying about it in other tongues. We don't know, but we've got assurance from the, the Word of God, which cannot lie, that the Holy Ghost will help us to pray for these things and overcome our lack of knowledge about what we should pray for as we ought by speaking, again, these divine secrets that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. One of the, the um, foremost Greek scholars, P.C. Nelson, said about this verse when he was asked about it in a, a setting with uh, a number of ministers. He was asked about this phrase, and he said, the simplest way to interpret or, or translate this phrase instead of groanings which cannot be uttered, is God talk. God talk. So what it's saying, if we insert that in its place, what it's saying is the Holy Ghost helps our infirmities. The infirmity or the weakness of not knowing what to pray for as we ought. But he makes intercession for us with God talk. Well, see, I see divine secrets all over that, don't you? With God talk, talk that only God understands, talk that only God can hear and recognize. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 27. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because he, the Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So he gives us God talk to overcome our weakness about lack of knowledge of what to pray for. He speaks in an unknown tongue, or he gives us utterance to speak in an unknown tongue that only God would know. But then he says something else about the Holy Ghost too. The utterance that we get in other tongues, the God talk that is given to us, is always according to the will of God. 
Praying in the Holy Ghost is the, the best way, the only real way that we can know for certain that we're praying unselfishly. Because we're not praying according to our will. We're praying according to God's will. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Now we've spoken about this recently. But this is a verse of scripture that nearly, is nearly always taken out of context. Nearly always. This verse of scripture is used to explain or try to explain some tragedy that's happened. To try to comfort people into saying, well, even though we don't know the, the reason why God took little Johnny, we know that all things work together for good. Well, that gives rise to the stupid, think, the stupid thinking or the notion that God teaches you through tragedy and sickness and disease and death. Even the death of our loved ones. And folks, nothing could be further from the truth. God is not the author of death. He's the author of life. And he gave us authority here on the earth so that we could choose life and walk in his will, walk in the blessings of God. Doesn't mean that there won't be bad things that come and happen in our lives. But some of those things, by praying in the Holy Ghost, we can stop. When it pertains to somebody else's will, we can't always do anything about that. But verse 28 is as a result of verse 26. In other words, he's saying if you want to get to the place where all things work together for your good, you're going to need to spend some time praying in other tongues, God talk, praying divine secrets of the Father. Now here's my question. How does Paul know? How does he know? As I said, he sure didn't get it from the Old Testament. Now Paul quotes a lot of Old Testament. More so than any of the other writers in the New Testament. He knew the Old Testament better than any of the other writers. He had the same training and education as the high priest would himself. A part of that training, a part of that education, is that the priests, which Paul would have been a part of, had to be so familiar with the law and the prophets, what we know of as the Old Testament, as to memorize the whole thing. Now that seems impossible to me. Clearly it's not because even today the Jews do that. But that's the kind of educational background. That's the kind of scriptural background that Paul has. But he didn't get this from the Old Testament. How does he know? How does he know? If the Holy Ghost told him, why wouldn't he tell us? <laughs> Folks, I'm simply posing the possibility, what I believe is the probability, that Paul realized somewhere or another, it had to be divine revelation, but Paul realized that things worked for him and for his good and for his benefit or for the church's benefit through the long hours that he spent praying in other tongues. You remember me telling you that Brother Hagin would tell the stories about seeing things, having visions of people and ministering to them, and so he'd just act those things out. One of the reasons that I've been on this is that I had an experience, a little bit of experience some years back after spending time praying in the Holy Ghost. Like I said, which is a common thing for me now, a daily thing for me now, but it wasn't always that way. I don't go to the office much anymore, and so I've got, for the purpose of having freer, a freer schedule and more time to spend praying in, the, in, in other tongues and talking to God and so forth. It used to be, before I started standing against this current work of the devil that's come against me. It used to be that after spending time praying in the Holy Ghost, I'd get sermons. And they weren't really sermons, but they were teachings. 
Some of them were just for me. Some of them were the Holy Ghost teaching me. But the majority of them were the Holy Ghost giving me things to teach in church services. Now, folks, if you've ever had a church service here at Foothill Family Church where something specific has taken place that really ministered your heart or, or directly it dealt with something that you were going through at the time, that was something I got from the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't know necessarily who it's going to be for. There have been very seldom uh, just a couple of occurrences where I knew who the person was, the individual, the singled out individual was that would benefit from something that the Lord gave me. Normally, it's just direction and utterance from the Holy Ghost to minister to the congregation. I don't even know who's going to be here from week to week. There'd be no way for me to try to orchestrate that. But 90% of the times that I would come to church would be as a result of some of these teachings that the Holy Ghost gave me. Well, Brother Hagin would have visions because that would pertain to the prophet's ministry that the Lord was leading him in. I'm not a prophet. I'm the pastor of a church. Now, when Paul talked about the ministry gifts in Ephesians 4, he mentions four ministry gifts. The King James divides it into five. And God gave first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. I'm quoting from Romans chapter 8. Let me get my head right. He talked about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. King James says pastors and teachers. The original Greek is a word that Paul made up that means pastor-teacher. In other words, Paul was inspired by the Holy Ghost not to say that teachers were separate from pastors. And you could understand why that would be necessary is because the majority of the uh, ministry that people are going to get in the local church is from the pastor. If the pastor is not able to teach, he's going to be severely handicapped in bringing the people to the place that God wants them to be. So I'm not splitting hairs, and I'm not trying to say that somebody that says they're just a teacher is out of the will of God. That's not for me to say. But I am telling you the, the fact of the matter is that Paul coined a new word, pastor-teacher. Well, that's what I've got. And so rather than seeing visions for a prophet's ministry to operate, the Lord gives me teachings or sermons. I lost a lot of that over the last eight years. The reason I lost a lot of it wasn't because I quit praying in tongues as much. I'm praying in tongues more. But I was dealing with some of the symptoms that were coming against me that had to do with the, uh, regaining the loss of strength that I had once had or just having to focus on my breathing and all the other kind of junk that was associated with it. There were some years there where I did not have the mental ability when I was standing up to teach to join two coherent thoughts together. It was like every thought that I would remember to say it would bring me to the edge of the cliff, and that would be it. And it was a real struggle for me to try to remember. And it's, it's hard to explain, hard to describe, but it's almost like I could feel um, in my head where thoughts would come to the cliff and then end. And so I tried to rely on notes to some degree, I've never been good with notes, so I was kind of handicapped with those. But there was just a lot of that Holy Ghost revelation about the direction of the, the teaching or the direction of the services or what God wanted to do that I lost. But I got some of that back this week. Now I'm beginning to do the things as I used to do. To be real honest with you, I had forgotten about it. It had been gone so long when it reoccurred, it was like, oh yeah, that's how it used to work. Now remember Jesus told the disciples, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. He gave them power to speak 
and to minister because that's what he had for them to do. That was his plan for their life. And the, as I said before, the, uh, the Acts 2 sermon, it was nothing special. There's nothing special about it. There's something special about who it came from because Peter's talking about things that he normally would not know about. How does he know about Joel's prophecy? Is he a student of Joel? You think that's what they did when they went out fishing? Waiting on the fish to come into the nets. And so they said, let's talk about Joel today. They didn't have some of that training. That was inspired utterance or revelation from the Holy Ghost at the spur of the moment. But the power behind it, the utterance behind it, the power that was the utterance, brought 3,000 people into the kingdom of God that day and set the stage for the power of God through healings and miracles and so forth. I don't know what God's got for you in your life, but I can tell you this, there's power to do it through praying in tongues. And just like spending time, me spending time praying or speaking in other tongues brings the, the revelation of the teaching to equip me to deliver it as God would have me to do. There's power for whatever he has you to do too. One of the biggest surprises to me in however many years I've been in the ministry, one of the biggest surprises is how spirit-filled Christians by and large won't speak in tongues. I don't get that. If it's a lack of understanding the importance of it, well, we try to overcome that by teaching on it like we're doing tonight. But so many times, people that are filled with the Spirit who have the ability because of the infilling of the Spirit to speak with other tongues any time they want to, just don't use it. Remember the story I told you about Brother Hagin? After having prayed for an hour, the devil said, now you've wasted an hour. Why do you think the, Holy, or why do you think the devil wants to keep you from speaking in tongues? Why does he think he wants to distract you or make you think other things are important? Now, in Brother Hagin's case, getting together a sermon can't be much more important than that. He's responsible to, to teach and to minister to the people that are coming to church. He's got to prepare himself. But look at what the devil's doing. The devil says, I'd rather you prepare a sermon than build yourself up in other tongues. Folks, speaking in tongues is a big deal for the devil. I think it ought to be a big deal for us too. Don't you? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for all the wonderful things that you've done for us. But Lord, nothing is more important than the presence of the Holy Ghost within us and the fact that we have been filled with the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues because the Holy Ghost came upon us. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, that we will use that which you have given us. We will put into practice. We don't have to be talked into wanting to do these things, Lord. And certainly we ask you to forgive us for being distracted. It's so easy to be distracted from things that are most important. But Lord, your word has re-energized us. And so we make a new commitment to you that we will utilize the benefits of the Holy Ghost infilling by speaking in other tongues. And we thank you, Father, for honoring your word as you always do by making power available for us in whatever way we need in our families in our businesses in our jobs in our ministering to others we thank you for the power of the Holy Ghost to enable us to do your will in this earth in Jesus precious name Amen Amen well, God bless you, folks. Thank you for being with us.